0: Um we've, we've taken a break from Mark. We've been on, in Mark for almost two years now, and after a couple months off from it, this morning we return to it. We return to Mark chapter 14. Um, we have three chapters left, 14, 15, and 16 of Mark. We'll hopefully finish right before Thanksgiving, um, and then we'll head into the Advent season and start a new study in January. Uh, but at the last time we were in Mark, if you remember, we started to understand that Jesus is on his last few days, weeks, weeks, um, on earth. And in Mark chapter 13, we started to hear more and more of the plot and the plan to not only just get rid of Jesus, but to destroy him and to kill him. Um, Jesus, if you remember, is a threat to the religious leaders, to their power and control over people. And so they did not just want to uh, to shut him up. They wanted to, to kill him and destroy him. Uh, and that's where we find ourselves this morning as we go into chapter 14. Now before we begin the message this morning, the backdrop is a couple questions that I want to ask you to think through as we go through this story. And the first one is this, um, to what or to whom am I fully surrendered? To what or to whom am I fully surrendered? Some of you may be thinking, well, I'm surrendered to my spouse, my kids, my job. And of course, the real question I want to ask us, is this question. The question that matters more than anything is, am I fully surrendered to Jesus? Now, this question is not just for those who maybe have not made a decision to follow Christ yet. It is for you. But it's also for those who've been walking with the Lord for decades. And the question is this, am I fully surrendered to Jesus? It's for all of us this morning. When I ask the question... Sometimes there may be areas of your life that pop into your mind and say, yeah, but not that area, not that relationship, not this thing, and so this morning I want to ask you to begin thinking about with God and with His Spirit that He would reveal some of those things that doesn't give you a confident yes to this question. And and know this, that the same Spirit that reveals it is the same Spirit that will empower you to answer yes to it. The theme this morning is that which we value, to that we also submit. Now there's one more thing I want to ask you to do, and that is this. I want you, as best as you possibly can, to leave 2023. 2023. I'd like for you, as best as you can, to enter into 33 A.D. It's a little stretch. It's essential, I believe, particularly for this story, for us to get into the context, uh, to maybe even put on the clothes that they're wearing, to see the things that they would have been seeing, to hear the things they would have been saying, but even more particularly in this passage, to smell the things they would have been smelling as we look at mark chapter 14 and our desire in that and desire to enter into the context is not only that we would understand it more fully in our minds but that would resonate in our hearts and then be able to live out through our hands and through our feet and that's our purpose and goal as we approach this passage in mark chapter 14 the title of the message is broken and spilled out before we go any further let's go to the lord in prayer god we do thank you for this morning and i um I do, too, love Sunday mornings. I love that you give us a place, set aside a time to be with other believers, to be encouraged, to sing songs of praise, to rehearse in our minds your truth, and as Seth said, your promises. God, I thank you for a morning where we can come and we can open your word, and by your spirit, be taught with all wisdom and all truth to have it revealed to us that it truly can be a light unto our path, that we can see clearly how you want us to live. God, help us as we go through this morning that, that as you reveal things to us, you also empower us to do something about that which was revealed. And so, God, with this morning I pray that you find the posture of our heart, open and ready to receive from you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or beside you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning and respond to Him? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to read the first 11 verses of Mark, chapter 14. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there was a woman, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, of very costly perfume of oil, a pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and wherever, whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Mark chapter 14 is the longest chapter in Mark and it deals with the final days of Jesus. And it begins with this wonderful, beautiful, fascinating story of a woman and her perfume. Now this morning, I want to break down the passage in five different points, and they all, if you take note, they all begin with the letter S. So, hopefully, you can write the S and then fill in the blank, and then later this afternoon, you'll be able to remember all five S's and maybe some subpoints underneath the S's. So, the first thing we're going to do is the setting of the passage in verses 1 and 2. In the first two verses, we get this understanding of what is going on with the setting and the plot and the characters of the story. Now, in verse 1, you see two different festivals or two different meals. One, you see the Passover, and then you see unleavened bread as a, as a meal. Both of the unleavened and bread is capitalized. It was a significant time where two different festivals are happening. Now, Passover can have two different type of meanings. It's kind of like there's Passover, the time frame, and then there's the Passover meal. It's kind of like what we do with Christmas. There's Christmas, and then there's Christmas Day. Same thing with the Passover. Now Passover, if you remember, was a Jewish celebration. It was a, it was a reminder to the Jewish people of their escape out of Egypt. No work was for be, to be permitted on the afternoon prior to Passover meal and all the way through the following day. Now the Passover meal was one of the uh, pilgrim festivals, which meant that people would travel from all over the place to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Passover. And in fact, Josephus talks about the number of people that were in Jerusalem at this time could have amounted up to a million, even up to a three million in some estimations. People were coming from all over for the Passover time. Now Mark also talk, talks about this unleavened bread festival or this unleavened bread feast. Now the unleavened bread feast was just another reminder that for six days after Passover that they would eat unleavened bread to remind them of how quickly they had to leave Egypt because they didn't have time to put yeast in the bread and let it rise. And so they celebrated these two things back to back. These two festivals feast right back to back. Now, also in these first two verses, we also, Mark gives us this insight on who the culprits were. He says it's the chief priests and the scribes, which is basically the San, Sanhedrin. They're the upper echelon of the religious leaders, and they are plotting to kill Jesus. Now, not only is this word uh, uh, setting out, but it's also this word that's a, a word that means that they keep trying. It's not like a one-and-done thing that they tried it and they didn't do it. They keep trying. They keep trying to figure out this repeated action over a period of time in order to destroy Jesus. Now, notice they say not during the feast, but it's not because they're having respect for the Passover, respect for the Unleavened Bread. They don't want to do it during the feast because there's so many people there that we could cause a riot during this time. So that's why they sought some secret scheme to arrest Jesus. Now, this is the setting that Mark gives us as we get into chapter 14 and this story of this woman in the uh, perfume. We get to understand the atmosphere that's kind of going around. We get to understand the time of year, the feast, the intense feelings, the large crowd. And we also understand the motives behind the Sanhedrin of wanting to kill Jesus. The first S was setting. The second S is the situation. Now, starting in verse 3, we start to unpack this story just a little bit more. Jesus has moved from Jerusalem out to Bethany, probably because there's so many people in Jerusalem, he moves to Bethany, which is about two miles away. And he's having his, his dinner there with, uh, in the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon the leper is obviously a person that's probably had leprosy, that was healed, and now they're having a meal in honor of uh, being healed by uh, Jesus, Simon the leper, and there's also some other people there that want to honor Jesus. And we find out who they are in John's account of this same story. Now, just as a side note, Matthew, Mark, and John all count this same exact story with the same exact people. Luke brings a different angle to it, and some scholars aren't 100% sure if it's the same story. But Matthew, Mark, and John are all the same story. And in John's account, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." So now you have the disciples, you have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all in attendance, and Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Mary is the one with the perfume. Now this word reclining is accurate in verse 3 because in Jewish times, uh, they reclined in order to have their meals. Now we sit around a table, right? Unless you're like a teenager, you sit in front of like on your bed, in front of your computer or whatever, are doing. But most of us, when we have a dinner, we sit at a table. We have a plate, we have forks, we have knives, we have naps, we have cups, we have everything out there at a table. And this time, as we enter into this context, we are, like them, reclining. Now, here's how they reclined. They reclined on their left elbow and ate with their right hand. Now, it was really bad for left-handers. But that's how they ate. They reclined at the table. So when you think of this room, think of everybody just kind of laying around and eating. Reclining at the table. And while they're reclining and eating at the table, 13 or 14 of the guys, this woman, Mary, comes with an alabaster vial full of pure nard and perfume. Now, an alabaster jar looks something like this. It was a long, had a, a kind of a bowl at the bottom, traditionally, and a long slender top with no handles. Capped at the top. Inside this jar, Mark says it was pure nard, now, I haven't been to anywhere where I can go now and buy a bottle of pure nard. So what is it? Pure nard is a, uh, an oil, an aromatic oil that's been extracted from a plant primarily in India, which the re- reason is why it's so expensive. These people are in the Middle East. Now, not only that, it was made from this flour of the choicest kind of flour. Now, Mark gives a very interesting word. He says it's pure nard, meaning that it's faithful and it's genuine. It's not the knockoff stuff. Scholars say that this this vial, this alabaster jar held like 12 ounces. Now, if you go to buy perfume today, you'll see you'll buy like one ounce up to maybe four ounces. This is like triple the the size, 12 ounces of pure nard, aromatic oil. In all probability, most women did not have this as in their home. It was way too expensive. So how did Mary have it? Some scholars believe that it's been passed down from generation to generation and added to. And it was an heirloom. It was part of their heir. Now, what was custom about this is that as people entered into the house... They would sometimes get a basin to wash their feet, like we've heard about before, and they would also have a few drops of this pure nard dripped on them, either their feet or maybe on the um, on their on their wrist or even on their uh, on, the, on their head. Only a few drops, but that's not what Mary did. Mary, it says, she broke the vial and poured it over his head or on his feet, the whole jar. Now, seeing this in verse four, some were indignantly remarking this is the crux of the situation now this word indign- indignantly here's the i love word pictures here's the picture that you see of the people looking at that the lady and Jesus in this scene indignantly the word indignantly has this word picture of a bull about ready to stampede pawing the ground ready to come at you ever seen that? Maybe from a spouse? Your kids? They're not just upset or disappointed, but they were mad and angry and ready to charge. And who was it that were all fired up? Some would think, well, it was the religious leaders. But remember, they're not in the room. It's the people who have been with Jesus that are all fired up at this woman. Religious leaders weren't there. It's the folks who had been with Jesus, who would seen his miracles, who had been provided for. There was Lazarus, who had a very significant thing happen in his life. He had been raised from the dead, and he was laying there with them. And they became indignant, (laughs) remarking. They were mad. All that they had faced... And what were they thinking? Why were they so upset? Was Jesus not worth what Mary had done? In fact, they said it was a waste. How could they have been so close, so thankful for who he was, and yet still be angry at what Mary was doing? Now, Now, I get it. I I can't imagine being in the room and seeing this happen. It's out of the ordinary. It doesn't fit. But here's what they were communicating. When those there were angry at what they saw as ways, they were not only declaring a value and judgment on Mary, they were also declaring a value on Jesus. That they didn't think He was worth it. And we do the same thing. When we look at people and say, why did you do that? They aren't worth that. Her tenderness and compassion and worship stand in striking contrast to Judas and the others saying, what are you doing? So that leads us to the third S, which is the sacrifice of this woman. Now, in verse 5, we start to understand a little bit more about what Mary had in this alabaster vial. The Greek text says that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii, as is mentioned over here uh, in the passage, is it's worth a year's wage. Now, in South Carolina, the average salary, if you look it up, in 2021 was 50 grand a year. Now think about this for a second. You're in this room, and somebody takes a $50,000 jar of perfume and pours it on somebody. Now what are you thinking? A year's worth of paychecks for a vial of perfume. This is what the disciples saw. They saw money and dollar signs. And it seems in our context, we can fall into that same thing that we can know the cost of everything, but have the value of nothing. And the verse 5 speaks to that as well. The disciples think the money should be, uh, perfume be sold, and the money given to the poor. Now, two things I want to say about that. The first thing is this. Jesus even is reflecting from Deuteronomy that's saying, "Yet you're always going to have the poor. And so taking care of the poor is the right thing to do. It's what you're supposed to do. But that's not what they were really concerned about. In fact, in John's account, you really find out what they're concerned about, particularly Judas. John 12, verse 6. Now he, Judas, said this not because he was concerned about the poor, because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer for what was put in it. Judas is saying, listen, sell that stuff so I can get a cut. That's a waste to pour it on Jesus. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was in to get something for himself. Just as a side note, do you, do you ever think if you were one of the twelve or the eleven... Do you ever think this ever came up with Judas before? Like, there's something about that guy. Always counting the money. Why didn't they say something before now? Where was the accountability for Judas? We'll look more about that in verses 10 and 11. The second thing I want to mention about this line of thinking about giving the money to the poor is this. Was the poor more important than Jesus? That's basically what it's coming down to. Was the poor more important to Jesus? Did they deserve the money more than Jesus deserved the anointing? These men, especially Judas, they were scolding her. Now think about this for a second. The disciples who've walked with Jesus and seen Jesus do all kinds of incredible things, they are telling somebody to stop worshiping Jesus. And here's the crazy part, if it's not crazy enough already. Whose perfume was it? It wasn't theirs. It was the woman's perfume. So let her do with it what she wants to do with it. Why were they so concerned? That's why Jesus stepped and says, stop. Don't bother her. She is doing a good thing for me. Now this word good, this word good has two meanings. In the New Testament, there's two different Greek translations. There's a good, meaning that says morally right to do. And then there's good, kalos, which means a, a fine thing, lovely to do, that is has built charm into it. It's extravagant. It's more than just doing the right thing that's good. It has a charm built into it. And that's the word Jesus uses. A true love produces lovely things. Love does not only do good things, love Does lovely things. So let me ask, let me just stop and ask for you to reflect on yourself. What kalos, what what good, lovely thing have you done for and with Jesus lately? Not just the good and right, obedient thing, but the lovely thing, the beautiful thing, the attractive thing. The thing that has charm built into it, that's extravagant. Jesus defends this woman because that's what she was doing. And he, he said, you're always going to have the poor with you, but I'm not always going to be with you. In fact, it's just going to be a few more days. This woman knew her love for Jesus was greater than the criticism of others. And it begs our question today, is my love, is my love for Jesus greater than the criticism of others? thinking about this passage this week the lord brought two words to my mind and it's this word sacrifice and courage sacrifice and courage if if somebody were to ask you when you left here today what is courage where does it come from when do you need it what's the opposite of courage many say the opposite of courage is fear and where does fear come from where did mary's courage come from think about this Mary's courage came from her confidence in who Jesus was and what he had done for her. And so does ours. Can you really have genuine sacrifice without genuine courage? There's no doubt most times we are tempted to play it safe in our faith with Jesus. And many times it takes courage to believe before we even lift a finger. Just like this woman, we have to agree that she had to know and believe who Jesus was, be totally convinced, totally convicted, in order to have the total courage that she had to do what she did. So remember this a quote Courage is the application of conviction. How is your courage? How is your conviction? One thing I read this week, and I'm going to paraphrase it, it says our greatest problem with sacrifice and courage is that we're always looking for a shortcut, an easier, less self-giving way to say I love you to Jesus. Think about this woman, the obstacles that she had. Number one, she's a woman in a culture that did not look highly on women. In fact, the etiquette of the day of in this room was for her to stay in the kitchen and only come out when the men needed something. To serve them food. To serve them drink. To clean up after them. It wasn't proper etiquette for her to come and do what she did. The other thing we see in John's account is that she also came out and let her hair down. Wiping her feet. Her her hair was a symbol of her glory. And she was exchanging her glory for Jesus' glory. You don't do that. Yet she did. And don't you think. Don't you think just for a minute that she thought, if I do this, if I pour all this perfume out, if I pour all this out, there's going to be nothing left for me to give to my family. And can you imagine what people are going to think of me and what these men are going to say about me? She had to understand the embarrassment and the ridicule that was going to come. But her courage... Was based on her conviction of who Jesus was. Their disapproval obviously demeans the woman and her gift. But them saying the money could be spent in a better way also demeans Jesus. And that was not going to happen for this woman. You know what I found in my life, and maybe you found it in yours? Most people, most people never really have a problem with religion in moderation. If you stay just below the radar with Jesus, with other people, most times you're fine. But if you start talking about Jesus too much, or start saying you're acting the way you're acting because of Jesus, you're going to hear about it. You've probably witnessed that in your own life. People seem to get uneasy or fearful whenever they see somebody extravagantly living and loving Jesus. And here's the reason why. Because most times it sheds light into their own life and where they're coming up short and loving Jesus extravagantly too. So we've got the three S's, the setting, the situation, and the sacrifice, and now we get into the symbol. Now, symbol is just something that happens that uh, kind of gives the story and helps it resonate in your heart in your own life, an analogy, something that connects. And the first thing is this symbol of worship. Jesus says she has done what she could. In other words, she's given all she had. It's the same thing that Jesus talks about with the widow's mite. She puts two thin coins in, and she, Jesus says she's given all that she had. Same type of thing, this act of, of worship, this act of pouring it all out, this emptying of the perfume is a symbol of this woman giving all she had to the worship and honor of Christ. It causes us to examine what is wasteful in our life and what is worshipful in our lives. Now this doesn't come out in the passage like concretely or even written, but it's there. And that is the symbol of smell. Can you imagine just for a minute what the room smelled like? Or even as you walked by the house, what the road may have smelled like? Remember, this is a lot of perfume that's been poured out. Can you imagine? When I was a kid, my, I would stay out and play all day long. All day long. And if you don't believe me, my mom and dad are in the back row, you can ask them. And I would come in and sometimes I would come in for dinner at night and the, the and the and the, the kitchen is full of smells and sometimes the smell would be like stewed cabbage. <laughs> and, it, and it smelled horrible. <laughs> but then my dad would come in and be like cabbage. Same smell, two different responses, right? Same smell Two different responses. Same exact thing that's happening in this room with Jesus and Mary. Same smell, two different responses. Jesus, don't stop her. The guys breathe it in and we're like, ah, this is a waste. Jesus found the aroma pleasing. The others found it repulsive. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 about our lives that God that God wants our lives to be a pleasing aroma to him and to the world around us our whole lives every last drop that we have in our alabaster vial is to be pleasing aroma to him that's why Jesus says don't stop her there's another symbol, and it's a symbol of her burial. In verse eight, he says she's anointing my body beforehand. Now Jesus knows that his death is coming up, and it's going to be a quick death. And in all probability, that he was going to be executed, and they were going to take his body. Uh, if it wasn't for Joseph of Arimathea and the others, they were going to take his body and just throw it out with the other criminals, where the dogs were and everything else. But Jesus says, "This woman has anointed my body for burial before I die." Most scholars believe two, three days later that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, because there is so much perfume that has been poured out, that he's sitting on the cross in the midst of the worst evil that's ever been done, past, present, and future, that Jesus, in the midst of that, can smell the perfume. And that even the guards around can probably smell the perfume. And it's a moment where Jesus can say, it is worth it. Grace and truth. Worship of me. It's worth it. That's why he says, let her alone. She's done good for me. And that's what happens in our lives. When we're broken and spilled out, other people will smell it. Does it smell like stewed cabbage? Or is it a pleasing aroma to the Lord? It's also a symbol of the gospel. Verse 9 says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole wide world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of, of her. So, isn't that a wonderful, powerful statement Jesus says about this woman? I want it said about me. That whenever you think of Matthew, whenever you see a picture of his face, you immediately think of the gospel. You think of how much you love Jesus. This woman and her story is a symbol of the gospel. It's a picture of the grace she experienced in her life that she was willing to pour out to let him know. It's also a picture of the gospel in the sense that Jesus was God's treasure. Very expensive. That was broken and poured out on the cross. the suffering, and the sacrifice. Why? For the pleasure of his Father. One author said this, he believed Jesus, Jesus believed that the good news would go all around the world. And with the good news would go the story of this lovely thing done with reckless extravagance, done on the impulse of the moment, done out of a heart of love. The question is, will that be lived on through you and me. The final verses of the story, the last S, in verses 10 and 11, is the sellout of Judas. It says that Judas saw all this. He saw all of it. He says, I want no part of it. I'm going to go sell him out. And he went and found the chief priest. And how did they respond? They said they responded to Judas and they were glad. Why? Because Judas, that Judas gave them the inside track that they needed to plot to kill Jesus. And notice this too. Judas gets his money, his motivation to get paid. We know that it's 30 pieces of silver to sell out Jesus. Not very much. Let me ask you, is there an amount... For you that you would take to sell out jesus see it's one thing to identify with the woman and the desire to pour all our hearts out but judas is also in the story and we have to ask ourselves is there any area in my life that i'm selling out for something cheaper In his greed and wickedness, he resolves to betray his master, the one he had followed for three years, to sell him to the Jews and the religious leaders. So let me ask you as we close up, what resonates? What do you think about? Where are you in the room? What are you smelling? What are you hearing? What's the Lord saying right now to you? Is there inside you, I want to be like the woman, a spontaneous act of giving it all to Jesus? Here's what we can conclude from the story. If love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance to it. I want to close with three questions. Are there any drops left in your alabaster jar? Are there things you're just holding back? I'll pour this much. I'm not going to pour it all. What is it? What would it be that you're unwilling to pour out? A.W. Tozer, one of my uh, favorite authors, says this, that people who are crucified with Christ have three distinct marks. One, they're facing in one direction. And two, that they can never turn back. And three, is that they no longer have plans of their own. Their whole life has been poured out to the worship of Jesus? Is there anything not surrendered? And the second question that leads from that is that, do you see it as wasted perfume? In in the story, do you see it as wasted perfume? In other words, is Jesus worth it? Is my pouring out my life to him worth it? Not for me, but is he worth it? I read a quote this week says this, The honor of heaven will more than make up for the contempt one receives on earth. The honor of heaven will more than make up for the contempt one receives on earth. And the last thing is this, is your picture attached to people's memory of the gospel? What are people going to remember about you? Will it be similar to what people remember about this woman? Is your picture attached to their memory of the gospel? We started with this question. I want to end with this question. Am I fully surrendered to Jesus? Seth and the team are going to come, and I'm going to leave us some time. Susie's going to play a little bit for us just to think Ask God to reveal by His Spirit anything from this story. Anything from the setting to the situation to the sacrifice to the symbolism to the sellout. Anything that God wants to bring to light in order for us to have the conviction that will be applied through courage to pour out our lives before Him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this time. God, you know what is going on in the hearts and minds of every person here and every person watching online. You know the desires of our heart. You know the hindrances that we have in our lives to pour it out before you. God, there may be people here this morning who have never trusted you as their, their Savior. They've never given their lives to you. And this morning, we pray that this will be the morning that they... They desire to be poured out to you because you're worth it, because of what you've done for them. And God, for the rest of us here who are believers, who've walked with you maybe for a long time, I pray, God, that you would help me and everyone here to hear your still small voice to say, what about this, Matthew? What about that area? What about that thing? Pour it out. Pour it out. And God, I thank you for Jesus being the extravagant gift for us that was broken and spilled out for us. And God, may in the same way we be broken and spilled out for you, for your glory, for our good, and for other people's benefit. In Jesus' name, take a minute and pray with the Lord for just a minute. And Seth will close us in song.